You're listening to There's a Better Way, smart talk on healthcare and technology. If you're up for energizing and story-driven conversations with national healthcare leaders driving industry innovation across the country, then you are in the right place. I'm very pleased to welcome Lily Brillstein to our podcast today. Lily runs her own advisory services firm called Be Collaborative, which is short for Brillstein Collaborative Consulting. Her name is practically synonymous with value-based care. Lily helped lay the foundation for value-based care models in the U.S., starting with an Episodes of Care initiative at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield of New Jersey. And we'll dig into that later in the episode. As Lily says, healthcare isn't just what's defined by health plans as covered benefits. On that point, I couldn't agree more. Healthcare is about patients and those who care for them. So with that, let's get started. Welcome, Lily. I want to thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie. This podcast is about finding a better way in healthcare, and certainly the transition to paying for value versus volume is a great example of a better way. But it's a complicated and slow shift to make at scale. You have been at the forefront of this work, so I'm really looking forward to diving into your work in value-based care. But first, take us back. Let's start where you started. Where did you go to school? How did you get started in healthcare? So uh, I grew up in New York and got an undergraduate degree in business administration, and I got my master's at Hunter College in New York. And I think I, I always knew when I was in business school that I really wanted to do work in healthcare, but I I didn't really know what that was going to look like. I knew I didn't want to be a clinician. I knew I did not want to be a hospital administrator, although I was one for a little period of time. In the late 1980s, I was in a serious relationship with a guy who uh, was HIV positive. And if you remember back in those days, it was a very very scary time. There were no meds yet. The AZT hadn't even been approved. The spread of HIV was rampant. There was tremendous fear. And we sort of lived a very secret life. Nobody knew uh, that Joe had HIV and was afraid to tell anybody. And so we really lived a very secret life. And because he also had hemophilia, it was sort of the first time I had seen any kinds of collaboration in healthcare. Nobody in the real lives knew kind of what was happening. It was then that I began to really feel like I was understanding where I needed to be and that I really wanted to be involved in work that addressed healthcare at kind of a bigger level than just what was um, clinical or point-in-term care. And I began to see sort of the need for clinical integration with what we now call social determinants of health and behavioral health support, things like that. And at the time, I was working at a great job. I loved my job. I was working at the Brooklyn Museum and uh, doing research. I decided that I was going to pursue my master's in public health. I went to work for what is now Northwell Health in New York. I worked for a period of time there as the administrator for HIV services in that newly sort of growing health system. And at the time, I also that was about the time I started my MPH, and I also, as part of my 
program, I did an internship and I chose to do it at the New York City Commission on Human Rights in the HIV Discrimination Unit. You know, if you remember in those days, right, these are the days when hospital trays were left at patient doors. People were afraid to even go in and, and see patients. It was really a very scary time. So I guess I, I would say that's how I kind of got started. And I was really uh, very committed to, to that work. And honestly, never in 100 million years did I ever imagine I would work for health plans, payers. That's quite an amazing story. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, from your deeply personal experience with HIV and the, what, you, what you explained as really the experience of coordinated care related to that treatment to a focus on public health. That's quite a start to your healthcare journey. Thank you for sharing. And where did your focus on quality come in? I knew the, um, the coordination wasn't good enough to sort of get us to a really good outcome. Yeah. And there really weren't very many good outcomes in those days. So I think, I think really, again, it started there. Uh, and I don't think I necessarily even considered I was focusing on quality. I was focusing on sort of how, how, do, we, how, do, we, how do we support at the individuals in everything that they need to be able to get well. And I understood early, very early on that it wasn't just clinical support, that there was so much else. You know, I like to say these days, um, healthcare isn't just what's defined by health plans as covered benefits. Can you tell me then, take that experience and those experiences and talk about what set you on the path to driving this movement toward value-based care. The reason that I really love working in this space and I work to kind of progress the move, particularly in specialty care across the country to value, is because it, to me, if we really are talking about value-based care, we're talking about models of care delivery and payment that support patients and their ability and their provider's ability, whether they're clinical, social, behavioral health, whatever it is, to get to the very best outcomes, to provide all of the care that's needed. And when we talk about value-based care, it's all of the care that's rendered to one patient, but across the full continuum of care. And again, you know, just drawing on the experience that I was talking about earlier, it just, it, it was a natural fit for me. And when I, you know, when I left uh, Northwell Health, and I was recruited to the first health plan I worked for, which was um, Hip Health Plan of New York, which is now Emblem. In those days, there really weren't a lot of people with um, MPHs working on the at the health plans. Today, happily, that is different. And so, I, you know, I worried about the, the the community that I advocated for the most were the people who were lowest on the totem pole, right? The sickest often didn't have great caregivers um, and were spending all of their money. I got onto the health plan side and nothing really computed to me. You know, I didn't understand business people negotiating numbers, units of service numbers without clinicians at the table and having not necessarily any idea what the impact of those decisions mean. And, um, and clinicians who were doing their jobs without any information about what was really in the contract. And so I began early in my 20 years on the health plan side, sort of choreographing a dance between the payer and our provider partners and trying to first 
get everybody to kind of listen to each other, support each other, and do work that um, was really focused on on the members or the patients. Then when I got recruited in January of 2013 to Horizon, the Blue Cross Blue Shield plan in New Jersey where we met, um, they recruited me to build their episodes of care program. And when they first talked with me about it, I didn't even know what that was. I honestly didn't know what that was. And um, as I listened, I thought, oh my God, like, this is exactly the kind of work I want to be doing. And it's a, you know, it was a perfect, like natural transition. And when we met, we, you know, you were at Horizon Blue Cross Blue Shield and you were, you know, as you say, director of, of episodes of care. Can you just tell our audience what an episode of care or bundled payment is? The way that I think about it is really everything that is related to a particular individual's procedure, a healthcare event, or a health condition. So, for example, if I'm a patient and I'm going to have hip surgery, patient, I'm not only concerned about when the surgeon cuts into me and and does, you know, uh, his or her job. For me, I'm concerned about that prehab portion. I have to get labs. I have to have radiology. I have to have blood work. Then I have to have surgery. Then after my surgery, I have to have care to make sure, you know, I can walk. I am not in pain and uh, I'm doing my exercises and um, all sorts of things have to be considered. Like, do I live in a fifth floor walk-up? You know, am I able to to navigate during the, can I go home? Can I be somewhere else? Uh, and then, of course, the downstream potential impact of that, you know, hopefully there's no infection. I don't have to go into the hospital, et cetera. So all of those things, whereas in fee-for-service, we focus on the surgeon has his or her job and they get paid for that. And the, the phlebotomist has his or her job and gets paid for that, the physical therapist, et cetera. The episode of care model is intended to uh, create a care delivery model that is collaborative, that integrates all of the supports that are needed to get to consistently good outcomes. Can you talk about how you define value-based care today? Yeah, I think from my perspective, I think value-based care really is about um, sort of creating care and payment models that support comprehensive collaborative care delivery. And I think that it gets bigger, right? It's not, again, just what uh, health plans have defined as covered benefits. It has to, you know, contemplate things like, I don't know, transportation, right? In, you know, uh, food and things like, does does the patient live in a fifth floor walk-up? Does the patient have a refrigerator if that's required to keep medications, you know, cold? And so I think it's, it requires so much partnership and so much collaboration because it's a complete rethink of the way we think about healthcare and pay for healthcare in you know in the country. Can you talk about some innovations right now that are working? Really, right from the very beginning, you know, when when we were working on the Horizon program, and I got there, and they had just come out of um, they they also had very mature um, patient centered medical home model across the state. And they had just come out of pilot uh, with hip and knee replacements. And I think there had been maybe a thousand patients over the three years. And they brought me in and basically said, you know, we've seen enough success in this pilot, you know, now scale this thing. My job really was to figure out how do I build a portfolio that tests this model broadly across multiple specialties 
And then deep within certain specialties and how do we get beyond just surgical procedures? And so taking from my, you know, my amazing program at Hunter, right, which was really a community-based education program. And I was always very comfortable with that philosophy. You go to the community and you don't share with the community what you've built for them, which is typically how health plans have operated. Um, but you go to them and you invite them in to build with you. And so, you know, that was really the spirit of of the build of the program, which I'm always so proud to say really became the preeminent program in the country. I didn't do anything in that program without first talking and working with the providers. And as we built, uh, we would continuously go back. And I didn't put anybody at risk. I had my executive leadership saying, get them to risk, get them to risk, get them to risk, right? Payers, number one priorities, predictability of cost. And I was saying to them, let's just see how this goes. If if I'm right, I'm thinking we're going to develop these relationships. We're going to build models that are um, successful for patients, for docs, for, for the plan, for everybody. And they'll learn. You know, docs had never yet seen that longitudinal data. They had never seen that before. So we need to give them an opportunity to look at that data, understand, you know, they may be making referrals and having absolutely no idea whether they're really effective or not. And um, I said, and I think if they're in this sort of live learning laboratory, which is what I thought of it as, um, you know, eventually they'll figure out how to create success here. It's in their interest, right? Their patients will be healthier. They'll earn more uh, more money this way as well. And what happened was, so the, the plan allowed me to do that. What happened was the providers, this was wild, the providers began to think of us as their trusted advisors. And that really, that does not happen very often between health plans and um, and their provider groups. And so it started to, it happened in, in in orthopedics first, right? We did the hip and knee replacements and then we built in uh, knee arthroscopy and some others. And then the next episode was um, was maternity. New Jersey had the highest rate of C-section in the country, right? Where the World Health Organization suggests C-section is indicated 15 to 20% of the time. New Jersey had 45 to 50%. Again, I went to the, uh, the OB practices in New Jersey and they were really very interested in partnering, you know, in building building these sorts of models. And as the as the sort of program continued to evolve, providers would come to me with ideas, right? You know, and say, for example, in maternity is a great example because we started. Um, you know, this is like 2013. You know, all very sort of new, and nobody's really very sure what 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 will work and what won't. And we started with low risk pregnancies only. And I would say about a year in, maybe not even, the docs came to me and said, you know, we're, we're kind of getting the hang of this model, uh, how it works. We'd like to uh, start to include high-risk pregnancies. And so we worked to capture that data and include that. And about two years later, they came back to me and they said, you know, we know that the care we render to the mom during pregnancy has a direct impact on the baby. And so we'd like to include the NICU period um, in this in this episode, also very innovative, not an easy one to do. But so the, my point is that they, the doctors, really informed and helped build this model. And I, I would say in a, more recent years, um, now with Be Collaborative, 
at one point I did a, a two-year initiative with, with a health plan, with a pharmaceutical manufacturer, with a data an, uh, analytics company, and with uh, a variety of specialists, uh, GI, cardiology, uh, dermatology, rheumatology. And, uh, you know, pharmaceutical manufacturers, in my view, know a whole lot about uh, adherence uh, and adherence to medication. Why don't people actually take their uh, medication? Why don't they follow their, ther- you know, their therapeutic prescriptions? What are the barriers? And being able to address those things has a very big impact on patients' outcomes. And so that's that's how I brought them in in the first place. Anyway, it was it was a fascinating thing. We were we came together to build a model around uh, a chronic condition. In this case, it was psoriatic arthritis, and it was really more about how can we actually create the infrastructure and build a model that could support a chronic condition, right? Not a one and done um, like a surgical procedure, but really care that for which patients might have someone other than a PCP as their principal point of contact. You know, the examples that you're sharing are just really apropos for a lot of the content and discussion that we have on this podcast, which are, it all comes back to deep collaboration across the industry. We've talked about on this show, collaboration for interoperability and your interoperability, collaboration for solving some of the specialty medications, problems that exist in getting patients on their medications in time. Collaboration around value-based care is incredibly important and deep. And the change management associated with it, I'm sure, as you describe it, is why this is just such complicated and slow work. But as we get it right, it's lasting. If we do it wrong, it won't be lasting, right? You know, that's exactly right. And to your point about, um, you know, we have to sort of focus now, but for the long term, right, it's the same thing. And that it's a very hard, um, I mean, that's what this is all about. It's about being being able to not only focus, you know, right here and now on uh, the ROI this minute, but how do we create models that actually support uh, individuals for the long term and and individuals meaning patients providers and all the stakeholders for the long term and as I work with groups I have a lot of startups that I work with and um, in this particular environment I, I tell them as we're focusing on chronic condition management and again hearkening back to my passion right on HIV which unbelievably has become a chronic condition now right um, that I'm very concerned about I think those are the folks, uh, people with chronic conditions who've been the most adversely impacted by fee-for-service, right? They need comprehensive care and they get individual units of care. So I think I tell lots of the groups that I work with today as we focus on the chronic condition and the the long-term goals, both in terms of critical outcomes and and financial models, we need to also keep an eye uh, very closely on what are the interim goals and, and successes we can create. Um, because otherwise it becomes very difficult to get the ear of the payer or others to really uh, be compelled to take action. We've spent a lot of time here at ShareScripts thinking about provider burnout, right? For for doctors, for nurses, for pharmacists, especially during and post the pandemic, it's just been, has that made it even harder to focus on this work or does it somehow make it easier once you get past the initial 
change issue that there may actually be some efficiencies in this work. Yeah, it's the latter. That is what I see happening, right? Once, um, it, again, I think the beginning part, just getting groups together, different groups, meaning, you know, docs, the community support, behavioral health, payers, getting them together to listen respectfully and actually identifying the expertise that others have and recognizing they can't do it on their own. That is the hardest part. That is really, and, and, and coming in, you know, um, I used to say to my team before we would go into a meeting with providers, I would say, okay, remember we leave on need to know everything and be right about everything here at the door. We're coming in here not to talk about anything we think that we're building. We're coming in to invite them in to share with us. Can you share the role of data in this work? So in my view, I always start with um, the payer who has that the longitudinal view of the patient, right? Which again, has not really ever been seen by the providers. They only see the data that relates to the care they specifically render. And so the, the data uh, that shows the full spectrum of care uh, across the continuum that individuals receive allows physicians to understand where there are variations in the care and the outcomes that really they may not even be aware of in their own practice, doctor to doctor, um, and within their, their own market. And so, you know, again, in my view, the idea is to create, is to address the uh, variability in care at cost of care to get to most consistent outcomes. So certainly um, that's information that informs um, the, the care team about where they might make changes, uh, you know, in terms of who they refer to, where they do their um, uh, procedures, et cetera. Um, then the clinical support, you know, the data that the physicians have, um, you know, critically important, right? The, the payers don't understand, don't aren't, don't have data around um, a lot of the information that that um, you know relates to the patient at a clinical level, and the physicians. It, by integrating that with the claims data, really you get a much fuller picture. The the other thing about it is when identifying kind of quality metrics, right? I talk about when we start from the end first, what are we trying to achieve here? What are we trying to get to? And, you know, when I first got to Horizon um, in that hip and knee program, there were more than 200 data elements we were capturing every patient. So I think every single time that somebody touched them, we had to know, and it was incredibly onerous for the docs. But ultimately, as I scaled the program, we narrowed that down and we had, I think we had two or three metrics that were, um, we measured across all episodes and they were things that we could capture in the claims data, like ER visits, uh, readmissions, and extended use of opioids in, in some of the episodes. And then we turned to the physicians and said, how do you know, like, how will we know we're successful, right? What, what metrics, you know, from a clinical perspective need to be captured um, to know that we're successful? And the doctors have that information, right? In, in orthopedics, um, it was often a pre- and post-functional assessment. Um, in maternity, it, it, one of the big metrics was captured by claims, which was um, the rate of C-section, but we also had uh, a few others. So the point is that the data, the inter the integration in, uh, of of the data, the clinical data and the claims data, is really important to be able to provide comprehensive care and get to consistently good outcomes. Now the EHR is largely fully adopted, 
And it ostensibly is comprehensive data on a patient, especially when interoperability is fully working, which I understand has got a long ways to go. But but it's it's really, you know, it's something we at SureScripts are very focused on is bringing interoperability across the electronic health record. And now you're talking about putting the the clinical data from the electronic health record together with the claims data from the payer. And you're really, I think, talking not only about a comprehensive single patient record, but analytics, right, that help a patient or help a provider understands what's happening with the population that they might have. Is that where then we get to population health? Yeah, I mean, 100%. There are very few people who are going to be able to take a big mess of data and really understand it without having it, um, you know, sort of synthesized um, to sort of tell the story. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, again, when I think of pop health, I don't think of it so much in specialty care. I think about it more in terms of primary care, although, I mean, it can be applicable in specialty, but it's more about preventive health and keeping patients healthy. Um, but I think analytics, so analytics are critical there. And they're critical in terms of uh, specialty care, both in terms of outcomes and also process. And what I mean by that is, you know, historically, um, you know, the health plans are very involved in sort of, and even many that have their P4P programs are involved in supporting, uh, paying for activities that the health plan tells the provider to do, right? Check the HbA1c, you know, uh, check the blood pressure, et cetera. We've thrown around a lot of terms, and there are a lot of terms associated with this big value-based care world from P4P or pay for performance, ACOs, accountable care organizations, PCMH, patient-centered medical home, episodes of care, bundled payment, population health. They're all parts of value-based care, right? Does anyone stick out amongst all of them, or are they all... things that need to work in concert with each other? I think uh, they're all elements of value-based care, right? And they all need to work in sync. And so, you know, PCMH and ACO, uh, the ACOs were intended to be integrated delivery systems, but really they're pretty much primary care, you know, uh, focused and attributed. So we have those models. Then we have episodes and bundles, which are the specialty care models. Um, All fall under the umbrella of value-based care, but today they don't actually all work. Uh, they're not very well integrated, right? And so as I think about um, like CMMI's new ACO REACH initiative, for example, uh, you know, those are primary care focused uh, ACOs. Uh, but the, one of the biggest goals is to figure out how do we integrate specialty care into those models for patients who are living with chronic conditions. Uh, and it's a topic of conversation across the country with payers as well, you know, how do we, how do we sort of figure this out? So I think we need to continue to move forward and, and now begin to integrate these models that grew up kind of individually uh, and figure out how do we really provide comprehensive care. And it all falls under, I think that, that umbrella of value-based care. So with all of this going on in the market, have we reached a tipping point on value-based care I think today that I think the point we're at is we need to take those those few uh, specialty care models and really begin to figure out how do we integrate them with the primary care models, and that doesn't really mean, to my way of thinking, 
that the primary care docs are kind of, you know, the bosses of the specialty care docs and, and direct them, but that they need to share governance, for example, in the ACOs and, um, and need to really be engaged in decision-making with the primaries. And the last thing I'll say about that too, is that, you know, specialty care isn't a thing, like primary care is a thing. Specialty care is a lot of things. It's orthopedics, it's, you know, behavioral health care, it's uh, infectious disease, it's, it's a lot of those. So if you have, you can't just have one specialist on the governance committee, for example, and presume you have specialty coverage. So it's complicated. Well, so beyond the transition to value-based care, what other areas of healthcare do you see having an impact or making us more patient-focused? I've seen some very interesting, um, cool examples of partnerships between companies that might not have anything really to do with healthcare and are incorporated. So like Nike has done some, you know, interesting work with uh, groups. There's been, there was a, a model, I can't remember who it was now, but I've, I've seen hospital groups and physician groups working with non-traditional partners to develop models and again, leverage expertise outside of their own to build models and build experiences that focus on the patient that they might not have been able to do, you know, on their own. All right. What could we be doing better today? I think what we could be doing better is um, being willing to listen to each other. People often tell me, you know, they've learned so much from me. And I, I think they always think they're learning from me, but I'm sort of secretly always listening and learning from everybody else. That's how I built the program at Horizon, you know. Um, so I, I think being willing to listen respectfully and come in um, with an open mind, not don't come in with decisions already made that the only way this will work is if the payer gives us more money or, you know, any other sort of decisions. So I think to me, that's the biggest hurdle, you know, is getting past the sort of um, suspicions we've had, you know, pay, providers have not had great experiences with payers and vice versa. And um, we have to be able to move beyond that, right? I would say that's my number one thing is, you know, be willing to partner with people and stakeholders you might have been horrified to partner with in the past and be willing to, uh, you know, understand that together you'll be able to build something much better than you could build on your own. And I've seen that, you know, over and over and over again in my experience. You know, I ask all of our guests this question because to be in this market, to really be progressive in this market, you need to be inspired. Where do you go for inspiration? Oh, where do I go for inspiration? You know, I, I get I don't know. I think I'm inspired every day, you know, when because I spend my days really talking on Zoom and when I can in person to people all across the healthcare continuum. And I'm always so, I always get, every day, there's something that gets me really excited that I hear somebody talk about and they may not even be thinking of it as something innovative, but I, I'm always thinking, oh wait, maybe we can incorporate that perspective or that thought. You know, I, I am an extrovert. I get a lot of my energy from my interactions with people. And so I guess I just am inspired by the, the folks I see and talk with every day, even even the ones who are terrified of coming into the models, you know, who think, oh, let me retire before this ever gets to me. You know, seeing them, being able to talk to them and, and work with them and see the evolution, you know, the movement in the space is tremendously inspiring. So last but not least, 
look ahead 10, 20 years and tell me what healthcare in America looks like, assuming everything you want to accomplish has come to pass. I think what it would look like is, um, is very different than what we have today. I think it would have lots of, you know, you talk about interoperability and I think it would have a lot of data interoperability and lots of communication uh, across the healthcare continuum with a focus on patient outcomes and, and reimbursement that supports those outcomes, not, not reimbursement that's paid based on what whomever the payer is wants to happen, right, in terms of the process. Um, so yeah, I think it's really, it would be comprehensive collaborative models that are focused on um, getting to the, you know, the best outcomes every single time with the most efficient use of resources. Exactly. That's, that's great, right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, Lily, and focusing us on collaboration and a willingness to partner all in the name of serving patients and those who care for them. Thank you so much, Melanie. Thank you, Lily, for being on the show today. Earlier in our conversation, you shared that when you were studying business in college, these new value-based care models weren't even a blip on the radar. None of it was happening yet. We were paying for units of care, and we're still doing that today in many cases. But I am inspired by what you said, that it's important to come to the table with an open mind, that payers and providers can work together, that we can build something much better together than we can build on our own, and that in healthcare, we can have a system where we focus on patient outcomes and that we can set up reimbursement to support those outcomes. Thanks to you, Lily, we're much closer to making value-based care a real part of American healthcare. Thank you for listening in today. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and review. There's a better way. Smart Talk on healthcare and technology. With your help, we'll continue to bring great conversations to the fore and to the wider listening public. Thank you.